Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, and today it is my pleasure to have as my guest, Yorona Boster. Yorona is a parent coach. She's a lost trauma-informed coach, an infertility coach, mentor, consultant, entrepreneur, and founder of Footprints Coaching. Her goal is to support people so that they can become their best, most fulfilled selves. As a member of the International Coaching Federation, or ICF, Yorona abides by all code of ethics within the ICF standards of practice for life coaching. And as I mentioned to Yorona before we started, that bio does not do justice to all the, the work that she has done and all the, the impact that she has had um, you know, with individuals who particularly have gone through pregnancy loss and fertility loss. And today our topic of discussion is going to be fertility loss. So with that, Yorona, I want to welcome you to the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am very happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. We might as well just, as I say, get right down to it. So let's just get right to the questions and sure. let's see where it goes. All right. So first and foremost, please tell us about the experience or experiences that have influenced your life path. So loss is something that I think is in most people's lives and will be at some point. But we don't really think about loss usually until we're older. <laughs> or unless something traumatic happens. But it's been a part of my life for a long time. It's, in fact, been in the fabric of my life. And nothing quite prepares you for infertility struggles. But I will say perhaps I was slightly better, I don't want to say prepared for it, but less surprised. And that's because of all the loss I've experienced in my life. And I would say that when I talk about loss, I've now come to frame it as something that's a little bit bigger than the traditional thought. When we think about loss, we think about losing someone to death. But I started to categorize loss in a lot of different ways and a lot of different pieces of life struggles, life's hurdles, and, and just the difficulties that we go through. As the child of a Holocaust survivor, loss, like I said, was been was a big part of growing up. It was a big part of the understanding that the human condition comes with the inevitability of loss. But when it came to infertility, it was a very different ball game. And I think one of the main reasons for that is because we, we make a lot of assumptions about where our lives are going to go. We don't always know what career path we're going to choose. We don't always know that. But if we want to have children, we never assume that something's going to be problematic. We, we just assume, well, biology gives us the ability to procreate. Okay. 
Now, if you've had a severe struggle as a child, like a, you know, a childhood cancer or something like that, again, that gives you a very different perspective. But if that hasn't happened to you, most people assume their basic biologic functions are going to work for them. And all they need to do is meet a partner and make it happen. And, and now, granted, I'm talking about um, heterosexual, heteronormative couples. Obviously, couples who have a different pairing are going to, again, make the recognition that their life is going to be a different hurdle when it comes to building their family. So, but let's just talk about the heteronormative couples for now. The, the reason when I've come to realize that so many people do not talk about infertility is because it's a bit dehumanizing. Because when you say, oh, my basic biologic function, look, you know, I may not be able to do really well in high school. I may not get a higher degree. You know, maybe I'll just do what people call, a, you know, a labor focused job. Or some people refer to things as menial jobs. I don't think, I personally don't believe there's any such thing as a menial job because it all takes a part of being a part of a society. But some of us don't have high hopes for ourselves. But one thing we can hope for, if we wanted, is to build a family. It's like, oh, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. I, uh, I find that I just need the right partner. I won't get into the relationship side of that part of it, right? <laughs> Making the assumption you found the right partner and you're like, all right, we need to make a plan. Most of the time, when we're young, we're told, don't have an accidental pregnancy, right? <laughs> Try not to get pregnant. We're usually not told about the opposite side of the fence. And when you're talking about such an intimate topic as sex, it becomes more taboo. Americans have a very sexually repressive society. And therefore, what's very interesting is we have this weird seesaw effect where either we're overly sexually repressed or we're um, excessively sexually open. And very few people have the balance to find in the middle. And so therefore, the topic is really difficult to talk about because it's directly related to sex, you know, reproduction. It's really hard. It's really hard. And when something feels like, oh, we're not functioning the way other people do, it's hard to open up to our family and friends about that. Because again, it feels like there's something deficient about you. And it's demoralizing. It's emasculating. It's painful to talk about those topics. So when you get married and if let's say your parents are, are alive they're, and they're pestering you, they're like, when am I going to ha have grandchildren? When am I going to get grandchildren? You know, as if it took them to make the grandchildren, not you. Right? <laughs> Most people don't want to talk to their parents about it because, again, you have these weird seesaw dynamic of sexuality. And then you have to go down. Well, mom, you know what? I was ovulating last night. So, yeah, maybe this is it. Says that. Very few families are that open to that kind of conversation. And people who've had children without any kind of biologic malfunction or missing parts or, you know, like where they've just had children, they just, their life plan was, oh, I've got to have kids. They give some really strange advice. 
which definitely tells you how little they really do know about the basics and the functions of reproduction, Mm -hmm. which is quite scary. It's another reason why I go on to the opposite fence of this where, well, I don't say opposite, but the natural next steps is parenting, right? And uh, why I'm always so amazed that we have a biologic function that gives us the ability to literally create life, but we don't always know how to properly support and raise that life once it's out. So, Yeah, there are a couple of things that struck me, Yorona, with that first answer is that one, Two taboo topics in this society are death and, te- and sex. Our, people are dying. Everybody's having sex, but nobody wants to talk about it. But we're, yet we're fascinated with both subjects. I think the second thing, and I think you touched on this, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, if, do you believe infertility loss falls into the category of disenfranchised grief? When we talk about just simply, I think, from my perception, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and obviously, it's related to talking about sex or the inability to to procreate after having sexual relations. If that's not being talked about, fertility loss isn't probably going to be acknowledged as much as it should be. Um, you know, for me, I would think if that were my wife, she's losing a part of her ability to 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 pre- procreate and contribute to to the continuation of the generation of her side of the family, and directly or indirectly our side of the family. So I think you take a look at all of that and it becomes a very significant form of loss. Again, this is just my own observations. Again, you may have something that you may want to add to that or you may want to correct me on and I'm fine with that. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll definitely talk about disenfranchised loss, but it, I think and and grieving in and of itself. What's so interesting is when women experience where, let's say they want to breastfeed and something happens and they're unable to, there is this horrible sense of failure. If you can't even get to that point, again, it feels dehumanizing. It feels like you are not a part of the rest of the human existence. It feels very isolating. And it's it leaves you trapped in a feeling of that isolation where other people aren't getting it. But what's crazy, what's crazy is that we now have an understanding that globally, one out of six are affected by infertility struggles. One out of six. That's a ridiculous number of people to not talk about a topic that is so prevalent. But again, and you pointed out very, very well and very true, two major topics we don't like to talk about sex and death. And I go there. (laughs) I go there all the time. I talk about loss all the time because what I want to do is I want to normalize it. I I think we humans are yo-yos. We tend to yo-yo. We go, you know, very rarely do we find the balance in the middle. And I think that there is a place for both balance, nuance, and context. And so one person's circumstance is going to be varied from another person's circumstance. When it comes to infertility loss specifically, we are so caught up in feeling, we meaning the people who are experiencing it, are so caught up in feeling like there's something wrong with us 
we can't even get to the place where we can look for support because we feel like we're something wrong with us. You know, uh, look at addiction. And I'm I'm just going to go off on a tangent for a minute, but just to talk about it, like if we recognize that addiction is, there's an association with substance abuse being an, a mental health disorder, you know, you wouldn't shame somebody for having cancer. Why would you shame somebody for having a mental health disorder or having um, a, an addiction, substance abuse or infertility? Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing, the CDC and the World Health Organization have already categorized infertility years ago as a disease. So when we look at it from that impact, we can lessen the feeling of dysfunction. But when we go to loss and we look at infertility from a loss perspective, again, I think life is a series of losses and I call them foundational losses. We go through struggles and hurdles. And the losses as we grow older usually become more complex, right? When it comes to infertility loss, again, it's kind of like you you can see a similarity in, let's say, somebody who's always wanted to become an Olympics, uh, you know, become an Olympian. And they get into a tragic accident and now they can no longer do that. They were on, on target for that thing. They were working really hard towards it. Okay, you were working really hard on a healthy relationship and establishing that. And now suddenly you've got into an accident. Boom, your life's career is over. Your life's trajectory, what you thought was going to be your life's purpose is over. And you face the wall of infertility struggles. And again, boom, there's a wall in front of you that places a very daunting perspective. Where can I go from here? One of the worst things people can say is, in the case of the Olympian, well, you've still got your legs. Maybe you're stuck in that wheelchair forever, but you've still got your legs. When somebody says to somebody struggling with infertility, oh, but there are children out there who need homes you could just adopt. That's the same. There's a, there's a, a, a similarity effect there because they don't understand what that actually means. If somebody always wanted to have a biological child of their own, looking at adoption, it's not a it's not a throwaway thing. And I'm not putting any kind of disparaging commentary on people who choose to adopt and people who really want to. But it's like you need to look at it from a whole different viewpoint. What are the limitations? What are the benefits? Where where can we go with this? And the just adopt. There's no such thing. And I say this all the time to people. People throw that out there like you can walk down to a corner store and buy a child on the street. Oh, yeah, you're right. No problem. I'll just adopt. I'll just grab a random child off the corner. It doesn't work like that. You know, somebody having their legs doesn't mean those legs are ever going to be useful to them the same way. And maybe those legs will actually impede their ability to do X, Y, and Z now because they don't function the same way. So we, we look at things and we make these like very minimizing statements. And I'm going to tell you something. After my second ectopic pregnancy, my OBGYN said that to me. I was 40 years old, almost 41 years old. And she's like, well, maybe you should just adopt. Guess what I did? I found a new OBGYN. It is so 
minimizing when we do that to people. And I think there are so many topics where we do this, right? Because what we do when we're discomfited by a circumstance that somebody else has found themselves in is we try to minimize it. And one of the reasons we do that is from a survival mechanism standpoint, because we want to separate ourselves from them as much as possible. There's a mental process to it. So we say, well, that's not me, but here, I'll, I'll throw what I think is a good Band-Aid on it, you know, and hope that they take that Band-Aid as the light, as a lifeline. It's not. If a doctor had said something similar to me, I would have found another doctor anyway. So I, I'm with you on that. But yeah. the other thing is that what else she appeared to minimize was the fact that he'd lost a child. And, yeah. you know, a, a death of a child due to miscarriage is not a lost pregnancy or any, or any topic present pregnancy, it's a loss of a child. I had a previous guest on, we talked about, you know, miscarriage and newborn loss. And I, I said to her and I, that I tell my students at Utica University in my death, dying, and bereavement class, when you're working with a family that has experienced the death of a child, a newborn death or a miscarriage, it is a lost child. It's not a lost pregnancy. And having individuals say things that they believe are supportive, well, like, well, at least you could have another child, at least you can adopt, are probably, even though they're well-intentioned, undermine the significance of the loss that that person is going through. And may not be true. So be mindful. Yes, be mindful. We don't get the, we aren't allowed to take somebody else's situation and put parameters around it. That's, that shouldn't be, I shouldn't say we aren't allowed. We could do whatever we want to do. But when we try to put somebody in a box and categorize it or minimize it or just put parameters around it, like, hey, at least you can get pregnant. That's not helpful. It doesn't allow them to grieve and process their loss and allow them to decide for themselves, well, this, this is a just for me. Some people will. Some people will experience a miscarriage and say, all right, it wasn't that horrible. You can do that for yourself. But nobody else has the allowance to do that for you. And I find that to be one of the hardest things and one of the reasons why people won't talk to their friends and family because they're afraid of what they're going to respond. They're so much more afraid of what they're going to respond with. But they forget that they have a voice that they can say, this is what I need from you. I'm going to tell you something hard for me. And I don't want you to minimize it. I don't want you to justify it. I don't want your opinion on it. I just need to be heard. Makes sense. You know. And this is a nice segue into my next question, is how can we best be of support to families who have experienced challenges due to infertility loss? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, there's so many ways. There's so many ways. Um, so first and foremost... And this is probably one of the most important things. When somebody indicates that their plan is to have a a family and you see that that's not happening, don't say, hey, when are you going to have a kid? Okay. One of the first things you, you can't say, 
grandparents, listen, if you're if you're a grandparent or you wanting be wanting to be a grandparent, do not say to your child, hey, when are you going to so when are you going to get on that kid baby making train and everything that that's not helpful. OK, they may have been on it for a while. They may have been starting before they got married or they may have just found out some devastating news. So first be open to encouraging them to just talk to you. Hey, what's going on in your life? Are there anything difficult that you're struggling with? If you know that they've been trying, if you know that they were on that ro- road, how how are things going? I know you mentioned that you um, and, you know, Robert were planning to start your family this past summer. Um, you know, how's that going for you? And is there anything you need from me? Is can I can I be of any kind of support? That in those interpersonal relationships, it's very much dependent on the relationships. So this is where nuance and context come in. The next thing I'd say is if you now know that they're struggling, remind them that you're there to listen. But you can also remind them that you want to be as capable as possible, but you don't have all the understanding of it. So there are support systems. There are places to go to. One of the worst things you could do, though, as an individual is ask invasive questions. Don't do that. Okay? Don't make suggestions. Don't tell them, hey, have you tried standing up on your head with your legs against the wall? A terrible thing. But you can say, hey, you know what? I don't know a lot about the struggles of of the process of trying to conceive. But I know that there are resources out there. Empathy is your is your best friend when it comes to this as an individual. Okay, let's go up a notch. So there's a wonderful organization called Resolve. They're the uh, for the United States, they are the National Infertility Association. And they're a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people dealing with infertility struggles from all different walks of life and all different areas. And there's resources on adoption. There's resources on um, infertility treatment processes. There's resources on therapeutic services. There's resources on my favorite, which is what I do is uh, um, I do two things in this world. I run a support group and it's virtual and we do, we meet once a month. There are, Resolve has them all over the country, all over. And actually I was speaking to an American who was living in Spain and really needed some support. And so there's even potentially across country, but at least in the United States, in the 50 states, there are, there is that capacity. And then on the other side of the fence, there's, uh, you know, one up from that, there's legislative work that needs to be done. There's the NIH that, you know, National Institute for Health has funding and resource because we need a lot because there's a lot of stuff that goes into infertility. There's PCOS, there's endometriosis, there's, there's so many different things that actually can contribute to infertility. But I will tell you that the one that tends to come up first and more often than not is unexplained infertility. You know, there's infertility on the male factor side, the female factor side. Sometimes it's a combination thereof. There's genetic testing. There's all sorts of things. 
But until you actually gain more knowledge and resources, you really can't move forward from there. Some people are afraid to move forward with any kind of treatment plans. With, um, unfortunately, the abolishment of Roe v. Wade, there has been, and I'm going to go there. I apologize to anybody who gets, um, who this brings incendiary topic of conversation to, but when places, when states start giving personhood rights to embryos, it becomes a problem for people seeking infertility treatment. And here's the thing. One of the reasons why I personally uh, think infertility treatment and embryos are, you know, I, 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 we look at it from a different place because it, it, may, it remains necessary to utilize a female's womb in order to gestate right? There's no incubation bubble anywhere for those embryos. So those embryos have potential for life, but they're never going to get there without the use of a woman's body and her life source. So I won't go any further into that, but I will say that there are a lot of things that are out there resource-wise. And so one of the things that we do is a lot of advocacy around state and federal legislation that involves more support systems, more financial assistance, more insurance coverage, um, you know, more access to care coverage, more um, more bills and legislation pieces that are really focused on, well, if we want these children to be adopted, we need to stop funding adoption agencies that refuse people based on their gender or sexual orientation. That's a terrible thing. You keep saying there are children out there, but you know what? There's a huge wall of access. So for the families who do want to adopt, they can't get to the children who are waiting to be adopted because they're simply being turned away before they even have an opportunity to show, you know, that they're, that they're capable and competent. Another thing I find really interesting, again, biology, you could pop out a baby in a back alley somewhere and then turn around and go into the bar and continue drinking. But when you're on the road to adoption, every little time, it's it's like 10,000 times harder than trying to buy a home to prove that you're worthy of adopting a child. So there's a lot of weird stops and starts to this. There's a lot of weird places where we run up against walls. And I think the first and foremost place is that we don't have this enough as a conversation. We don't, we aren't facing the reality that it needs to be a conversation. Reproduction needs to be taught on a basic understanding. Take away the sex aspect of reproduction and talk about it from a reproductive standpoint, first and foremost, But if you add the sex back in, there are countries, I believe, I want to say it's either Denmark or Norway, that teach basic reproduction to their kindergartners. Mm -hmm. Do you know what that country also has? The lowest number of premarital sex rates, the lowest number of teenage pregnancy, the lowest maternal mortality rates. And a much healthier outlook on one partnership. And for me, I think prevention needs to start at a young age, as young as that individual is, is capable of, of understanding. And 
Um, if you know what you're facing, if you know what the, the parameters are, you're likely to make some informed decisions as you grow developmentally. I'd like to tell you a very funny story. Yeah. Okay. My son is about to be six. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were having a conversation about menstruation. You know why? Because we're still working on privacy. And he walks into the bathroom on me, well, you know, and he saw what he saw. And I was like, you know, he was asking about it. He was curious. And here's what a lot of parents do. I have no idea how to answer this or I'm afraid of answering this or I'm afraid to mess up. And so they try to pretend the conversation isn't necessary, needed, or you'll learn about it when you're older. Or there's some mysterious, like, this is, this is not for you to know. We would be a much healthier country if instead of in the, in the schools that do have reproductive and sex health, sex ed health, instead of separating the males from the females, we teach it all together so that they have a basic understanding of a basic biologic function and it's no longer something to be afraid of. So again, it's pushing this male-female agenda of separating them. And then we have men who get into adulthood and don't understand the basics of menstruation. And I've actually heard, these are things I've heard. Why can't they just hold it? This was that when I was 16, I was in, I was on a tour group thing in Israel. And one of the things we were going to do was wade through waist high water at one point during the middle of uh, this area of uh, a big hike we were doing. And a bunch of us females who, you know, we were 16 years old, not going to work, not planning on wearing tampons. And we got out of doing that particular hike. And one of the guys said, why can't they just hold it as if it's urine? And I'm like, okay, clearly he hasn't been educated in understanding what this is. Now, this was the 90s, so of course they weren't, he didn't understand it. You know, we, we still haven't come that far even at all. But what frustrates me about that is the mystery lends towards fear, and fear breeds the desire to remain uneducated. And what fear also does, I think, is drive us to look into sources, internet resources, or other sources that may not give you accurate information. And that's the other part of that. Yes, very much so. So to go back to the story with my son, what was so funny is after I explained it in an age-appropriate manner to him, you know, there's nothing wrong with the blood. It's actually a natural part of my body. It's kind of like how your, your, your skin sheds skin cells all the time. Right. And I, I explained it in a very, very simplistic manner. And there are a lot of wonderful resources to do so. He said to me, Mommy, okay, I get that. What, why couldn't I have learned this when I was four or two? Because he's a smarty pants. But what was interesting is that he is not afraid of something like that. So he's not going to be afraid if he chooses to have a heterosexual partnership when he's older. He's not going to be afraid to go out and buy feminine pro hygiene products for his partner. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be afraid of. And I think that this is the cycle we get stuck in. Mystery, discomfort, fear, irrational decision-making, and irrational search for reasoning 
to and we get stuck in that cycle. And I think once we talk about issues that can be seen as fearful, it takes the fear right out of it, and we just respond to it normally because we know exactly what is entailed. What we no longer fear no longer has a hold over us. So, exactly because that's our logical brain processing the facts of the matter. Mm. You know, and and something I tell parents all the time is like we can't rationalize with our fear, but we can gain a deeper understanding of what it is that we're afraid of, and really uncover that. And there's a lot of emotions that stem from fear, like anger, frustration, resentment, that breed usually from fear. Fear is a survival mechanism, yes. But once we can dispel the fear and, and dig into it a little bit more, we can be less afraid. Let's, let's go back to loss and disenfranchised grief for a minute, because this is something I, didn't, I don't feel like I really <clears throat> went into it. One of the hardest parts of the, disenfran the disenfranchisement of the grief process in infertility loss is that it feels intangible. There's an intangible quality to a miscarriage, um, the loss of a, an adoption, the loss of an IVF cycle that went wrong. You know, um, my husband and I spent a lot of money and we had four embryos, but guess what? All embryos were abnormal, chromosomally abnormal, <clears throat> which means I would have had we not done that testing, I would we would have done a transfer and I would have miscarried each one. They were not. And when I say chromosomally abnormal, for those who don't understand, that means that that embryo that was created, yes, there's genetic makeup of my and material of my husband and material of mine, which technically created an embryo. But because it's genetically abnormal, there are missing functionalities to it, which would make that embryo into a person. So this is one of the reasons why granting personhood to an embryo would be like granting personhood to a piece of skin. I, I hate to minimize it in that way, but essentially there's there's genetic makeup in a piece of skin, okay? There's genetic material in that piece of skin. It's never going to become a human being on its own. So the genetic makeup of that embryo was not going to actually come to personhood. So we need to have a better understanding of the science behind this. I, I personally wish that people would stop calling ectopic pregnancies pregnancies because they're not in the traditional sense. A miscarriage is a pregnancy that left the body. That's no longer viable. We had three miscarriages, two of them. One of them I was nine weeks along. One of them I was 11 weeks along. And there was no heartbeat anymore. And when I say heartbeat, I mean, there was no... Um, uh, you know, the heart isn't beating in the traditional sense of, of it, right? Um, but it's actually the, the functionality, you know, the electrical impulse, the electrical pulse. An ectopic pregnancy is not a viable pregnancy. It will, if it implants outside of the womb, it will never gestate into personhood. Okay, so 
what's more than that, my life was in danger. Women's lives are in danger the moment they actually become pregnant. There's a higher risk of mortality, you know, higher mortality rate. Okay. Barring that, an ectopic pregnancy is kind of, and I hate to, you know, I hate to make, again, a comparison that's not exactly accurate, but it's accurate enough for somebody to have a basic understanding. It's more like a tumor. It's more, it's a growth that happens and it calcifies outside of the womb and then it becomes a danger um, and you need to have that removed, period. You cannot take it out and implant it into the, implant it into the uterus. Okay, let's get technical here and create a baby. Because here's the thing, the reason why an IVF, in vitro fertilization, is not called an implantation, but rather a transfer, is because they take the embryo that, they were, that was created outside of the womb and they just send it back in there with the hopes that it will implant in the uterine wall and that it will actually stabilize and develop. They cannot implant it in the uterus. So they cannot do that also with an ectopic pregnancy. And the moment that that um, malformality happens, they can't just move it. So when legislators create legislation that says that they should try to save an ectopic pregnancy, they aren't just misinformed. They are malintentioned and they are causing a danger a direct danger, an infringement on someone else's life. Yeah, because ectopic pregnancies are, are life through are life threatening. Women can get killed if they're forced to carry the term with an ectopic pregnancy. And they and if and, they do no treatment, they will die. The likelihood of them dying, the likelihood of them not dying is much more rare. Mm-hmm. Some form of treatment has to occur, whether that's surgical or medication. Yeah. In order to rid them of that of that um, growth, okay. Again, I'm not going to call it a pregnancy because, if, again, I feel it's inaccurate. Uh, you know, from everything that I know about it, um, I'm not a medical professional, but I have enough medical knowledge in this arena to to be able to speak on that. And if you want a medical professional's take, there is a really wonderful person who talks a lot about this. Uh, doc, a mama, Dr. Jones, she's amazing, and she has a lot of content around this. Okay. So now to talk about the grief process of this, though, an ectopic pregnancy can still feel like a pregnancy. When I had my very first one, I didn't understand what it was either. Mm-hmm. I was very misinformed. I even asked them, can it be transferred? I said that. I was very misinformed, and that was dangerous. When we're misinformed, it's, it's life-threatening. And thank God I listened to my doctors and I said, okay, I'm going to, you know, I have to go for surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this part of me that was grieving. When you hear the word pregnancy and you're somebody who actually would like to be pregnant, would like to give, get, bring life into the world, you now have experienced a loss because it's the loss of the hope to bring life into that world, into the world. That's the, the pain of that loss struggle. It's a little bit more ethereal. It's a little bit less tangible, but it's no less, it, it feels no less real. 
humans have a really interesting brain mechanism that feels things that aren't necessarily associated with the logical. There was somebody who talks about, um, you know, our senses. We have all of our, our senses. And imagine a lemon. Think about the juices from a lemon, uh, from a lemon. And now think about it just, you know, cutting into a lemon and you smell the citrus smell and you, you know, you know, it's very interesting. All of that happens. And psychologically, your mouth starts to water as you're thinking about that lemon. It's no less real for your emotions and your, the psychology of it than actually having the lemon there itself. Right. Mm -hmm. So so this is where the tangible and the intangible meet. And we need to have a recognition and an understanding that we have to have some sort of an acknowledgement of a grieving process for an infertility loss. That's not to say that some people, that there won't be people again who will be like, it's fine, I'm okay, and honestly be okay. Some people need it, some people don't. But look at it from a loss perspective of people we love. Some people are in excessive pain from that loss and other people are able to move forward rather quickly. Neither approach is wrong per se, but people need to actually have an allowance to be able to acknowledge that those things are okay. How we deal with our own personal losses needs to at least be acknowledged. So one thing that I did recently well, I wouldn't say recently. It was back in February. In New Jersey, we are trying to pass legislation to provide paid bereavement leave for people who've experienced an infertility loss. We were able to actually get it past the first assembly. I think it actually moved out of second assembly. So there's a process to legislation. You know how that works. But what was amazing was finally that first acknowledgement step, because there are so many people in this world who have had an infertility loss and their employers have this expectation that come back to class if you're a teacher, come, come back to your office. What is wrong with you? And you can't process that, right? When my, I lost my parents, I had some time to grieve. And when I came back to work, people were like, how you doing? Are you okay? When I had my miscarriages, that didn't happen. When I had my ectopic pregnancies, that didn't happen. It just was looked at as a medical thing. And now, you know, all right, what's wrong with you? Why are you so sad today? Like, you know, and, and I think that that's the problem we face in this world. When we can't acknowledge that somebody just experienced a difficulty, we don't grant them the empathy that they need in that moment. And, and the loss is a loss regardless of the circumstances. And I think we need to, as a society, avoid categorizing uh, which which loss may be considered to be a loss or which loss may be considered to be more severe and more worthy of our attention than another. Because loss is loss is loss, whether it's symbolic loss, whether it's phenomenological death, whether it's loss due to death. It all plays a role in terms of how we grieve. It all plays a role in terms of how we transcend loss. Everything, all of our experiences lead exactly up to the present moment. And I'm glad you talked about the legislative work you were doing because that was going to be one of my, my next questions. And I think it's important that 
in terms of that what you're doing is is making awareness that fact that infertility loss is something that also needs to be honored with paid bereavement leave with paid leave and i'm 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 really glad that you're creating that kind of awareness. Hopefully that triggers a trend where this happens nationwide, but we shall see. We yeah, shall see. Yep. Well, and I will tell you one last thing because I agree with you and I want to add to that. Whether it's a the loss of a pet, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, the loss of um, a pregnancy, the loss of a of an infertility cycle, the lo- whatever loss it is, nobody gets to categorize that for you. But what we can do is we can make it something that is just a part of the fabric of our lives and build in support systems for those losses and support and ways we can better that. So through legislation, through support groups, through um, normalizing therapeutic services and coaching services through normalizing um, all of the support mechanisms that we need instead of trying to minimize these things because we think that's a healthier way to move on with life. It's not. And speaking of coaching services, tell us about your work with Footprints Coaching, what the missions of Footprints Coaching is, uh, types yeah. of individuals that, that uh, contract with services for you. So tell our listeners a little bit about that part of your life. Okay. So um, as you mentioned earlier, I, I'm an advanced certified life coach. I have 17 years in the fields of early childhood development, the psychology of human development, life coaching, and speaker coaching. So the categories I primarily focus on are parenting, loss, infertility, and trauma. Um, I'm kind of like trauma is like not my biggest area, but it tends to bleed into these other things. So it tends to be woven into the fabric of those things. Um, but my primary focus, but I also do speaker coaching work because I'm a TEDx speaker and I, um, and I work with people who have land, who are working on landing and delivering their TEDx talks. So of those areas though, um, and this is what footprints coaching really does. We work on any of those areas. Life coaching is different and speaker coaching is different, but life coaching specifically is different from therapeutic services. And one of the things I really want everybody to understand is life coaching is all about forward momentum, achieving goals, and really being that goal-oriented focused place. Therapeutic services are when you are in a mental health crisis or um, an active state of distress where your basic life functioning is, un- you're unable to function in, the, in your daily routine. Okay, that's really important caveat. And I think everybody should know that out there. So if there's a life coach that's telling you that they can do better than a therapist and when you're in an active crisis or mental health disorder state, please proceed with significant caution. That said, one of my biggest goals focuses coming up in these next couple months is on my parenting work. I'm starting in January, a fully virtual 10-week parenting program. And I have a couple of different slots. So you can use a morning slot. You could do a morning slot, a midday slot, and an evening slot for parents. So there's a bit of a variation. And it's a 10-week program that's going to be really focused on basic parenting foundations and then really working into those coping mechanisms and strategies of the ongoing process of parenting. Because as my co-host in our podcast, um, my co-host Robert and I say all the time, 
in our, our podcast, The Evolution of Parenting, the role of parenting never stops, but it does change. So what you may need when your child is an infant may be different than when they're a toddler, may be different from when they're a young child to a teenager, to a young adult, to an adult, and, and so on and so forth. It's an evolution. So the program is really dedicated to parents at any variations or people who are in the I'm we're going to become a parent place or parents who just want to better their parenting skills and their relationship with their children. And that's really the focus based off of certain foundational tools and evidence-based strategies and methodologies. And, you know, one of the things, Jerome, I tell my students is that, um, you know, you just are born to be a parent. You have to acquire those skills to be a parent. Just falling in love with the love of your life, getting married doesn't automatically make you a great parent. And I, I found that out very quickly after my first child was born, that, boy, they have a lot to teach me. And I thought I knew everything there was to know about parenting just because I married the love of my life and figured I was going to fall into it naturally. Trust me, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It takes practice. It does take practice. One last question because we're coming close to we're coming close to our time. How can people get in touch with you to to contract for your services or uh, find out more about what you have to offer? Absolutely. The best thing you can do is go to my website, footprintscoaching.org, and click on the contact for more information. That'll go directly to me or my team. The other thing you can do is find me on LinkedIn. You can find me and, you know, I don't think there are any other Urona Bosters out there. So <laughs> you could just go ahead and put that in. And you can also find me on Instagram. You can also find me on Facebook. And I do have a YouTube channel that we're getting going, but that's that's in the in the function, in the works. So, yeah. And all, all of that will be in the uh, show notes when the uh, podcast goes live. So. With that, Yorona, it was a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much for spending time, sharing your wisdom, sharing your expertise about infertility loss, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. For sure. Absolutely. I'd love it. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And with that, that is another wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode, and please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.